Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you for being with us again. You're welcome, Kyle. We always like to start with the Angelus. Do you have an intention for today? You know, t- since today's the patronal feast of St. Luke, mm-hmm. who is the patron of physicians and nurses and all those who serve in the healthcare professions, I thought we could remember them in our prayers. Very good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. And she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Luke. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, talks about the life and gospel of the beloved physician, St. Luke, whose feast day we celebrate today. Then it's on to the special anniversary masses celebrated on both sides of the diocese and the beautiful vocation of marriage. Afterwards, it's on to questions submitted by listeners. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And today, as you mentioned, is the Feast of St. Luke. You know, I was thinking, Kyle, in the Angelus, we recall the the Annunciation. Yeah. And we wouldn't know about the Annunciation if it wasn't for St. Luke. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. It's in his gospel and, and it's not in the other gospels. So even the words of Mary that we say in the Angelus, behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. Those are words that are found in the gospel of Luke. Would he be considered then a, a Marian kind of a gospel writer? Right. Then? Yeah. Because also... It's only in St. Luke that we know about not only the Annunciation, but also the Visitation. There's things in the Gospel of John about Mary that don't appear in other Gospels, like the wedding feast of Cana or Jesus' words to Mary when she stood at the foot of the cross. But the infancy narrative in Luke is unique. The stories of uh, the Annunciation, the Visitation, and also the account of the birth of Jesus, which um, we also have, but in a different form, more from St. Joseph's perspective in the Gospel of Matthew. Hmm. We know also 
the presentation of the child Jesus in the temple and the um, finding of Jesus in the temple. They are uh, episodes that are in only the Gospel of Luke. There are some things in the Bible that are in every single gospel. Right. Very few things. Um, a lot of things that would be in three of the gospels. Right. Is it any less important that it's only in one gospel? No, I think, um, you know, since, since all four gospels are inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're all the word of God, but they're different perspectives of the evangelists that come through. Some of them were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Luke mm -hmm. wasn't. As you know, Luke was a, a companion of St. Paul. He was um, really a disciple of St. Paul. Might be helpful to know a little bit about his life. Yeah. And really, we know mostly from the Acts of the Apostles some things about Luke. And of course, Luke was the author of the Acts of the Apostles. It's really a continuation of his gospel. So, so we can thank St. Luke also for all the things we we read about in Acts, like Pentecost. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, St. Luke accompanied Paul on some of his missionary trips. He went with him to Macedonia to proclaim the gospel. He was with Paul in, in Philippi. He went with him to Jerusalem, eventually went with him to Rome. Mm -hmm. And we know that he was Paul's only companion during Paul's second imprisonment in Rome. And that was very shortly before St. Paul's death. In the second letter of Paul to Timothy, which he wrote when he was imprisoned in Rome that second time, Paul wrote, Luke is the only one with me. Hmm. But knowing that about his life, we also know that he was a physician. That's why he's the uh, patron saint of, of physicians. Unlike the other evangelists, Greek was his first language. It was his original language. And you can see the beautiful Greek. Well. You know, if you read the Gospel of Luke in Greek. Um, but he was a physician in Antioch, and that was a Greek-speaking city. There's a beautiful style to his Greek and technical accuracy. You can see in also his medical background mm -hmm. in the language and his choice of medical language hmm. in his writings. Now, we know explicitly that he was a physician because Paul said, so in his letter to the Colossians, he refers to Luke as the beloved physician. Uh -huh. So he's the patron saint of physicians and healthcare workers, as I mentioned. And um, it's usually ar around the Feast of St. Luke that we celebrate the White Mass, which is a special mass for those who serve in healthcare professions. It's one of my favorite gospels, if not my favorite, not only because of... Um, the infancy narratives, which are, are beautiful, but also there are certain things in Luke that we don't have in other Gospels. Some of the parables of Jesus, mm -hmm. like the parable of the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. I had a course in the seminary on Luke and Acts, and it was called Jesus the Merciful Savior, because that's the whole emphasis of Luke is on Jesus as our merciful Savior, the famous parable of the prodigal son being an example, Luke chapter 15. I'd say that Luke's gospel preserves the really the most extensive biography of Jesus because it begins with the Annunciation and goes all the way to the death and resurrection of our Lord. And he came from Antioch, which really was an important center 
of early Christianity, uh-huh. you know, for the Gentiles. He was probably a Gentile convert. I mean, we don't know. He may have converted to Judaism and then to Christianity, but be that as it may, he, um, he was Greek. And we know that St. Paul was a tent maker, and he continued that trade as he was evangelizing and preaching the gospel. He would still make tents to support himself. Do we have any idea if Luke was continuing his medical practice while evangelizing with St. Paul? You know, I I wouldn't doubt it. I mean, the fact that Paul called him the beloved physician, Mm -hmm. I I would guess that if Paul got sick, Luke took care of him, (laughs) you know, or took care of others. Well, in addition to the Marian themes and the prodigal son that you mentioned being part of it, uh, he does something slightly different with the Beatitudes, where his version is, blessed are the poor, and all the rest of the Beatitudes say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Is, do you differentiate between those two translations? Yeah, I think you can. I mean, Luke doesn't qualify it like Matthew does. Luke's gospel, and you know, I mentioned it's the gospel of the merciful Savior, but it's also referred to often as the gospel of the poor. Mm-hmm. You see all through Luke's Gospels his um, emphasis on how God blesses the poor and the lowly, beginning with the first chapters, the humble ones, the shepherds, for example, Mm -hmm. Mary and Joseph themselves, Elizabeth and Zechariah. So it's no surprise that he would um, say, blessed are the poor. Now, we know, because you can't just look at one thing, we know that material poverty in itself doesn't make one blessed. Mm. It's um, one also has to have the humility, the poverty in spirit, which is emphasized by St. Matthew. But the experience of Luke, I'm sure, is that um, those who are materially poor often are more cognizant of their dependence on God and are truly poor in spirit. Not always, but material poverty, simplicity, etc., I think disposes us to rely more on God's providence. And that's why, for example, in the church, we have those who make the vow of poverty mm-hmm. as a means of sharing in Jesus's poverty, but also of being detached from material things so as to have one's sight really on God and, and the things of God. Talk about sharing in that poverty. Uh, also, we're still a ways into the sharing the journey campaign, which has been happening for a while now. And I know for part of that, we talked about this already a little bit, that you went into some of the homes of refugees that are here in our diocese. What was that experience like? Uh, it was beautiful. You know, what I wanted to do was basically show the church's love and support by visiting with the people. But I also really was interested in learning about their journey, like how they came here, what was their experience back in their home countries, and why they had to flee. Mm-hmm. And then what it was like and in that period getting out of the country, and some of them it, it was... Um, months or even years in refugee camps and in really dire poverty. Two families I met with talked about how back in Burma it became unbearable because the army would come and demand 
money from the people mm -hmm. and uh, and it was very difficult they couldn't make a living because it was almost like their their money was be and things were being stolen from them yeah there's the whole issue of those who fled because they couldn't practice their faith their faith meant so much to them the dire poverty persecution in some situations it's violence you know the some of our refugees from Central America, for example, where their children, their, especially the teenagers, would be threatened with harm or even death if they didn't join a gang or get involved in drug trafficking. What parent wants to let their children, you know, their lives be threatened if they don't do something that's evil? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's just heartbreaking, really. But yet, to see that the perseverance and the hope and the gratitude that they have to be able to have the freedom that they enjoy here in the United States. All right. Well, coming up, we'd like to talk a little bit about the anniversary masses that you're doing here in the diocese, uh, kind of in the middle of those. And we'll also take questions from those that have submitted them here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. You have already celebrated the anniversary masses in Fort Wayne and the ones are coming up in South Bend on the 22nd. Can you tell us a little bit about these anniversary masses? Yeah, it's just one on each side of the diocese. Uh -huh. So I celebrate masses for those celebrating special anniversaries, the 25th, 40th, 50th, 60th, even 70th. And I think this is really important because it highlights the beautiful vocation of marriage. And to uh, bring couples together who are celebrating their anniversaries and to give them a special blessing and uh, actually also thank them for their witness of fidelity. Hmm. And it's great because oftentimes family members will come to the masses and it's kind of, even though most have their own individual celebrations, I think it's good to come together with as a diocesan family that these couples come together in each of our cathedrals and, and, and I can thank them for their witness. Can you share a little bit maybe about the marriage that your parents had or grandparents and what kind of influence that was on you? Oh yeah, sure. My parents were married in 1950. I remember their 40th anniversary and mm -hmm. a celebration that we had for them that was in 1990. But then my mother died in 1994, so we were never able to have a 50th mm -hmm. uh, wedding anniversary celebration. But um, I feel blessed by the upbringing that I had. I have an older brother and a younger sister. I have many fond memories of, of our life in the home, the love and care of both my parents. I would say, too, um, where I saw it most vividly was the last year of my mom's life when she was dying uh, with cancer. And that was really very, very difficult for everyone. But, but then I saw my father's love for her that was amazing. And also his, his grief at the death of my mother. And I think a lot of our listeners, we experience these things and it's, it can be very difficult, but, but in, in many ways it's the beauty of love and love sometimes hurts because when we see those we love suffer. 
But at the same time, we look back at all the memories. No parent is perfect. No marriage is perfect. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're all sharing the sinful condition. But yeah, I think God's plan for marriage and family to be, um, when we see a couple setting out on a journey of life together, I love celebrating weddings. You know, you don't know what the future will hold. And I, I think of, um, and I say this to the married couples often at the anniversary masses, their life, lives unfolded in ways that they probably didn't foresee if they've been blessed with the, with the gift of children. The important thing is that they walk through marriage together, hand in hand, and putting themselves in the Lord's hands, the Lord's powerful hands. And that's why we have the grace, it's a sacrament, the grace of the sacrament of marriage which strengthens one to, to live the vows, to grow in love each day. And of course, it may begin with a lot of romance, but that romance often will fade, mm. um, and love is so much more than a romantic feeling. So to live that definitive commitment requires openness to God's grace, and um, it, it requires patience. and. And um, it requires sometimes, say, you know, saying, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. just to share together life and, and the joys and the sorrows and the challenges. Uh, some can be pretty tough, but the importance of faith that the couple embarks and, and, and walks the journey of marriage with faith and with this commitment to fidelity, trusting in God and also with the strong belief in the permanence of marriage. That really goes against things in our culture because in a culture of what uh, Pope Francis calls the temporary, the culture of the provisional, kind of doubts the possibility of permanence. Hmm. And I think we see among some young people today a kind of a fear of making a permanent decision. And of course, We see this with the prevalence of divorce, and that's why faith is so important, you know. I think we have, one has more confidence when one believes in God and believing that his love is is stable and it's forever. And then we can understand how the covenant of marriage with God's help is meant to be stable and forever. Do you have any suggestions for a couple that is preparing for marriage on how to keep a focus on the, the sacrament rather than some of the other things that can really take, I know from experience, they can take over the reception. There's so many logistics to figure out that we can get distracted from preparing for this lifetime of marriage and, and be distracted by all these other things that aren't nearly as important in the scheme of things. I saw that all the time as a priest mm-hmm. preparing couples for marriage. And um, I was always encouraging them to recognize that, yes, they're preparing for a wedding, but that's just one day. The most important thing is to prepare for the lifetime of marriage together. So I think couples need to be assisted with this. I think sometimes that we've gone a little overboard with wedding celebrations. What I mean by that is when it becomes so stressful, Mm -hmm. whether it's planning the reception or all the guests or whatever, that it can draw one away from the spiritual preparation, which is most important. So I think couples need to be assisted in keeping the priority there and maybe simplifying a bit the celebration of the wedding. I like that idea. 
what kind of things are there in the diocese for preparing for a marriage? Well, we have the Office of Family Life that is charged with the diocesan marriage preparation program. We have a pre-cana day mm-hmm. where couples come together and they hear various presentations on key aspects of marriage, including church teachings and sexuality, also key elements of uh, about communication and dialogue in marriage. But there's also time for discussion where couples can, can talk to each other, discuss important matters. So it's a very good day, but that's not it. I mean, there needs to be the person, the accompaniment, pastoral accompaniment of a couple. And in most places, we have what are called mentor couples. These are couples who have been married for a while, uh, couples with strong faith, who um, meet individually with couples preparing for marriage and and go through all these different aspects of marriage and answer questions and dialogue with them. That is really, really important. And then there's the place of the priest, the priest who meets with the couple several times, not just to plan the wedding. That, should, that I always said is the last meeting, hmm. but where they actually get into depth regarding married life and church teaching. I think we can always do a better job in marriage preparation. You know, there were two synods of bishops in the last few years on, on marriage and family. And one thing that kept coming up, bishop after bishop, emphasizing how we should do a better job in marriage preparation. When you think about it, a preparation that a, a young man goes through to become a priest, right. I mean, it's six to eight years. Right. And um, what do we say? The, the couple has to come at least six months before the wedding to begin preparation. So it really isn't a long time. But I have to emphasize, too, there should be a remote preparation for marriage even before a a couple even gets engaged, when they're teenagers, they should be learning about the vocation of marriage. Mm -hmm. And so what would you like to see being done in our schools and in our parishes to make this more of a a long-term education process? Well, we are doing it. It's part of our curriculum in our Catholic schools and and religious education programs, the vocation of marriage. So we are doing it. The other thing would be maybe we should be focusing on it a little bit more in our parishes. For example, making sure that not just in marriage preparation, but that we that it be a marriage building parish, we could call it. Yeah, that's really important that there be support for couples, that there be, we can call it marriage enrichment. Mm -hmm. And we have parishes where they have, for example, date nights for married couples. Uh, I remember I've spoken a couple times at St. Pius X in Granger, and there are a lot of couples who come, and it's a great experience where they just go out and they focus on their marriage with other married couples at the parish. So I think we need to be marriage-building parishes, that we work hard in providing the the pastoral and spiritual support for couples. Do you have any suggestions for a couple that is struggling in their marriage of some things that they could be doing or uh, ministries that are available to help out? Well, you know, the best, if it's serious struggles, in other words, couples who may be contemplating divorce, mm-hmm. there's a program, a weekend program called Retrovi. Mm-hmm that helps couples whose marriages are in trouble. And it's really an excellent program. 
and I've referred couples to Retrovi. But for the ordinary, not so difficult crises, it's just so important that a couple be attentive to their relationship. Of course, when you have the gift of children, so much focus goes on the, on the kids. Mm-hmm. But we have to be careful that, that marriage isn't neglected. And that's why I think it's important, as busy as couples may be in the raising of their children, to make sure that they have time for each other, that they are growing together as a couple. That's why things like this date night is a, is a great idea. They provide babysitting and that so, so couples can get together. I guess I compare it to a priest or a bishop who isn't continually cultivating his relationship with Christ, that he's so busy that he might start neglecting prayer. Hmm. Well, that's dangerous to one's vocation. And I think it's the same thing for married couples, their friendship with each other, and of course their friendship with the Lord. I mean, prayer is also very important for a successful marriage, essential, you know. But I would say also the time for each other. All right, and I'll just mention also that the diocesan website, dioceseffwsb.org, has a page on marriage support groups, which include Retrovia that you mentioned, a third option, the St. Pius the 10th Marriage Enrichment Ministry, and Savoring a Lifetime Together, the SALT program, which is in several of the parishes in the diocese. So people can check that out at dioceseffwsb.org. And coming up, we're going to take questions that have been submitted by listeners. If you have questions, you can submit them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll answer some of those questions coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here asking questions that you have submitted for our bishop to answer. And our first one comes from Father Dennis Benedetto from St. Charles Parish here in Fort Wayne. He says, not wanting to be outdone by my beloved clash mate, Father Eric, I figured I should ask you a question too. While responding to his query about your favorite food, you mentioned you are part Greek. Which of your ancestors came over on the boat Do you have any family members who are Greek Orthodox? And most importantly, do you think there's a reason to hope that in the future the Catholic and Orthodox churches will be reunited? Thank you and God bless. Thank you, Father Dennis. For our listeners, I ordained Father Eric and Father Dennis this past May. What a joyful experience that was. Two very fine young priests. And and as Father Dennis mentioned, Father Eric had called in a question about my favorite food, so yeah. <laughs> uh, so a shout out to Father Eric and Father Dennis. And I know Father Dennis has a special interest in the Eastern Church and and the traditions and the spirituality. So mm-hmm. so I'm not surprised by his question. Yes, my grandfather on my mother's side, my mother's father was an immigrant from Greece. As a matter of fact, his name was Kyriakos, which is translated into English as Carl, which is my middle name. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, my Greek relatives 
in Greece, call me Kyriakos. Huh. So how do you like that? Yeah. So anyhow, when my maternal grandfather came over, he came to where my roots are, a little town in the coal regions of Pennsylvania called Mahanoy City. And um, most of the my ancestors who lived there on both my mother's and father's side were coal miners. It was a tough life. Mm-hmm. You know, many got lung disease and I think they called it black lung and and died young. It was a rough life, but they had strong faith. So my grandfather, when he came over, married an Irish Catholic woman, my grandmother, whose name was Sarah Boyle. So it was an Orthodox Catholic couple, which back in those days wasn't very common, you know, um, mixed marriages. But they had a beautiful marriage. And uh, the children were raised Catholic, so my mother was raised Catholic. Now, my grandfather continued practicing the Greek Orthodox faith until his death, but he loved the Catholic Church, too, Hmm. uh, which was really neat. There was no Greek Orthodox Church in Mahanoy City. On special feasts, he would go to the nearest one, which was in Hazleton, Pennsylvania. But he would accompany my grandmother to Mass. So anyhow, we always had a very, I'd say great respect for the Orthodox, which, as you know, are very close to the Catholic Church in beliefs. The Orthodox have all seven sacraments. They have valid priests and bishops and and really many beautiful things. Their liturgy is beautiful. And then we have those of the Eastern Church who are already reunited with the Catholic Church, the Eastern Catholic Churches which are different from the Orthodox churches, but very similar liturgy. Mm-hmm. So to Father Dennis's questions, yes, I have family members who are Greek Orthodox, but they're all in Greece, mm-hmm. and they're basically cousins. I was the first one of my family to go back to Greece huh. since my grandfather left. And all I had was some photos and uh, an old address. And uh, when I went to that address, they didn't recognize the name and they pointed me to a corner grocery store and I went there and they did recognize it and they called on the phone they're speaking Greek (laughs) and sure enough um, these people came and it was my mom's first cousins and boy did they put on a feast for me I'll never forget heaping piles of octopus and squid. (laughs) (laughs) How was it? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, it was good. I didn't care so much for the Retsina wine that they served. Okay. But uh, (laughs) I liked the squid and the octopus. But it was wonderful. They, at first, you could see they were disappointed. They they wondered why I was studying. I was a student in Rome. They wondered, why are you studying in Rome? You could see when they found out I was Catholic, oh. they were not real happy. But then you could, they they said, "Oh yeah, Kyriakos married an Irish Catholic woman." So then it was they okay. remembered that they rem- oh, yeah they remembered it, huh. and and uh, actually they told me many stories about my grandfather. For example, the first cousins of my mom, and we never knew this. They were able to get a good education because my grandfather sent money back home to his sister in Greece and they were very poor but this money allowed them to get their children a a good education so anyhow I love this part of my ancestry and I know Father Dennis 
he asked if there's reason to hope that in the future the Catholic and Orthodox churches will be reunited. Mm -hmm. I think there's always hope. There's been the international Catholic Orthodox dialogue, but it's difficult. We have so much in common. Uh, So, you know, we just have to keep plugging away, keep praying. Sometimes there there are various things that are getting in the way. Some are political. The Orthodox churches themselves have a lot of disagreement among themselves. So there are some Orthodox who are more ecumenically minded than others. It's complicated. I could spend a whole segment on this, but but I do have hope. I really do. Okay. One of our listeners asked, during Mass, why do some priests verbalize the entrance antiphon and others do not? We don't usually verbalize the entrance antiphon when there's an entrance hymn. Okay. So, but if there is not an entrance hymn, we're supposed to recite the entrance antiphon or chant it. Okay. Another question that was submitted was, when a priest prepares his homily, is there a guideline he must follow, or does he follow his own thoughts through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Good question. I would imagine that priests prepare their homilies in different ways. Everyone has their own uh, means, but the church has certain things that it definitely recommends in homiletic preparation that are really important. And number one, number one is prayer. Hmm that we have to pray with the scriptures. Perhaps some of the listeners know the practice of Lectio Divina, which is the slow, meditative, prayerful reading of the Word of God. That's the number one thing, because really, and I think of this before I preach, I'm just supposed to be a conduit of God's Word touching people's hearts. So I have to be open to the Holy Spirit in preparing homilies. I think it's helpful when one reads the scriptures as part of preparation and thinks about them to consult a good biblical commentary so that one understands the meaning of the text. But it can't be just this academic exercise. There also needs to be the the listening, Hmm. the priest or the deacon or the bishop listening in his heart to the word of God before he preaches it to others. And then as part of that is being conscious of the congregation, the people to whom we preach. Obviously, a homily that I deliver to at a Catholic school mass to children would be different than a homily that I preach at a normal Sunday mass. Mm-hmm. So we should really have a good sense of the word that the Lord wants to preach to the particular congregation that we serve. So that means we have to know about the lives of our people, their struggles, their challenges, and we need to take time to prepare homilies. I mean, it should be one of our top priorities. And that's one thing that's difficult because of all the demands on priest's time. Pope Francis and Pope Benedict had a lot of guidance for priests on how to prepare homilies. And after the the Synod of Bishops, I forget what year it was, Pope Benedict called for the publication of a homiletic directory, Hmm. which is now uh, just, I forget, maybe two years ago was published by the Vatican Congregation for Divine Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments. And the focus of that is that idea of Lexio Divina. 
And Pope Benedict wrote beautifully about praying with the scriptures through Lexio Divina. Then with Pope Francis, in his first apostolic exhortation, The Joy of the Gospel, he has a whole section on preparing homilies. And he gives a lot of good practical, concrete advice. And he can be pretty, uh, what would I say, direct yeah. in saying, don't preach like this, you yeah. know, don't preach too long. Uh, don't just make it some kind of a moralizing discourse, you know, huh. and don't make it about yourself. Really know your people, you know. So, so I think priests and deacons and bishops can learn a lot from what Pope Benedict and Pope Francis wrote about preparing homilies. It's really important. It's an important part. I mean, the church teaches that preaching the Word of God is the first task of priests. It doesn't mean it's the most important task because celebrating the Eucharist is the, the greatest thing we do. Mm -hmm. But intimately connected to that is preaching the Word. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Uh, you can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll have more of your questions coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we are asking questions that are submitted by listeners. And one of our listeners asked, as an adult child of a mother who was and still is emotionally and verbally abusive, how do I honor her as the fourth commandment states? I already have set strict boundaries and calmly expressed how her actions make me feel. She says I am being too sensitive and would like to see me more often, which I know will lead to more rough comments, perhaps in front of my children, as this has happened before. What should I do? Thank you for the question. Um, abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, verbal, is a terrible thing. And um, certainly no child deserves any kind of abuse. And even for an adult child, abuse from parents can be very harmful and very painful. So I can understand how the a person would ask about the fourth commandment. Mm -hmm. You know, how am I supposed to observe that? How do I honor? In this case, the, the questioner is writing about her mother being still emotionally and verbally abusive. And I understand that... Um, she doesn't want to put herself in that situation. Mm -hmm. it, it's uh, too hurtful. And I was really happy to hear she doesn't want her children to see this. Right. So I think, for example, maintaining a safe distance to avoid that kind of abuse is not dishonoring the parent. I know some who've had to even go so far as to end the relationship. Hmm. Now, that shouldn't happen unless it's that's like a last resort. But if the abuse is so bad, that is not dishonoring. But so how do you honor that parent still? Well, you pray for them. Mm -hmm. You know, that's number one. And not hold on to hatred or, or to revengeful thoughts. Acknowledge the good things, the, the gift of life, for example, that the parent 
cooperated in giving you. And never give up hope that God can change them. Mm-hmm. So I hope that's helpful. You know, we're to love our enemies, Jesus mm-hmm. says, even when those enemies are our own parents. But love doesn't require one to be a victim of abuse. Because a parent is who abuses a child isn't acting according to God's law. As a matter of fact, that's why children need not stay in such a situation in order to honor them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Jim Fisher from Our Lady of Good Hope in Fort Wayne asked, can you schedule more plenary indulgences? Oh, Jim, thank you for that question. First of all, I would say it's important to understand that it's the supreme authority of the church that determines the granting of indulgences. Basically, I'm speaking about the the apostolic see, the pope, and and his curia. Mm -hmm. Um, So, as a bishop, I can only schedule a plenary indulgence or the granting of a plenary indulgence in what the Pope allows. And basically, the Pope has given to bishops, to diocesan bishops, the authority to only do this three times a year, three times a year. Mm -hmm. According to the prescribed formula, I would impart that indulgence in the diocese. It's a papal blessing, basically, with a plenary indulgence three times a year on solemn feasts, which I would designate. Like I've designated October 13th, the closing mass uh, of uh, of the centennial of Our Lady of Fatima as one of these three times this year where a person who attends the mass could receive a plenary indulgence. And if you notice, if you've been to any of the masses that I've done this, it happens at the end of the mass when I give the blessing in place of the customary blessing, I would give the papal blessing okay. that has a plenary indulgence attached. So so basically, to answer Jim's question, I can't schedule more than three plenary indulgences a year. Okay. I'm curious about this next question. Are priests required to dress to be recognized as priests when out in public? Oh, interesting question. Well, clerical garb is really prescribed for when we're performing our priestly duties, our priestly ministry. But it's also a good idea to uh, not, you don't have to always, but but I think it's good to be recognized as a priest because there are opportunities. People will come up to us, for example, perhaps with a particular need or something. Mm-hmm. So, So to be visible in that way as a priest, I think, is a good thing. I understand also there are times where priests just want to relax if they're, you know, um, and, uh, but I think it's generally a good thing. Do you have any expectations of the priests in the diocese to wear their collar at certain times or locations or? Well, when they're doing their pastoral ministry, I expect our priests to be dressed in clerical, uh, clerical attire. I think that's important when we're serving our people when we're visiting the sick, whatever it might be, okay. when we're attending an event, I think it's that's a church event. I think it's important to wear clerical garb, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
Amen. Thank you so much, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us next Wednesday at noon for a special live interview with Bishop Rhodes as part of Redeemer Radio's share Tune in each day next week from 8 a.m. to 7 p.m. to hear how Redeemer Radio has impacted the parishes and ministries throughout the Fort Wayne South Bend Diocese. To become a part of Redeemer Radio's mission and to support programs like Truth and Charity, please consider donating by calling or texting the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com. Because of listeners like you supporting local Catholic radio, we are able to broadcast Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes every Wednesday at noon with a special encore presentation on Saturday mornings at 11. To find out more about the share schedule and to check out previous Truth and Charity episodes, go to RedeemerRadio.com or download the Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet. Click on the Truth and Charity link to submit a question for Bishop to answer on a future show. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. <music>